Hi, Techie Joe here. I work with Ace and Knight and some of the best psychics in West Virginia to create amazing live streams and podcasts for the Psychic Coffee Shop Network. Together, we brew up great content discussing news, events, hot topics, and more, all from a psychic perspective. On the Psychic Coffee Shop, we interview amazing authors in the metaphysical realm. Coffee and Tea combines Asen with Tracy, Dottie, Natalie, or Lady Gwendolyn for the good and the bad of being a psychic. Shameless self-promotion with Dottie the Psychic talks to leading and emerging YouTubers and business owners in our community. Mountain Bears brings you the latest in LGBT news and politics. The Psychic That Plans answers the question of, well, how a psychic plans. Plus, we're live on air. We take your comments and your questions, including psychic advice questions. Check out our amazing programming, book an appointment with top psychics, and find out all the wonderful things we have to offer at pcsbnetwork.com today. Hey everyone, Natalie here from The Pendulum's Path. If you need guidance, direction, spiritual connection, or more, then listen up. I have worked as a psychic and a medium for over three years, connecting people from all over the world with their loved ones in spirit giving them insight and guidance into their current situations, the past healings that need to be worked on, and what it is they need to know today in order to have a better future. It would be my absolute honor if you would visit my website at www.thependulumspath.com. I also offer emailed readings for those with busy schedules too. Also, for you goblins who subscribe to the Esoteric Book Club, I have a special coupon code just for you. Enter the code STAYWEIRD to get $5 off of any order of $25 or more. Hope to see you there. Thanks for the tobacco and the new pipe. I'm in sore need of it. Now I can take my old one apart and clean it. Have you had a chance to look around the mountainside and talk to any folk? Seeing a look of frustration on my face, the old woman laughed. You might have to have the local pastor introduce you this Sunday during service. Most people won't talk to you before you do. Heard you were gathering information on the healing folk in this area, so I'm guessing that is why you came to see me. She turned and opened her oven door. Pulling out the iron skillet from the heat, the fragrant smell of fresh cornbread filled her kitchen as I sat at her table. Coffee was percolating on the top of the stove. Are you here today for some recipes for healing and workings, or are you here for a reckoning? Explaining that I was planning to stay in the area for the next couple of weeks to gather information for my book, Granny Buck said she could take me out to the hillside with her tomorrow if I could meet her on her porch at 5.30 in the morning. Having settled the time for our next meeting, she gazed thoughtfully out the window for a moment. Slowly, shaking her head, she answered her own question. Uh, reckoning, then. Seeing that I didn't know exactly what she meant, she explained that there were many kinds of reckonings. Some reckonings were of biblical proportions, like the pastor says, and some everyday-like for people like you and me. A reckoning could mean that a person needs to come to an understanding of what is going on around them. A lot of times, they just don't see. Sometimes, the only way these people can understand a reckoning is to tell a story that applies to it. So if I was willing, she wanted to tell me a story. Cutting the cornbread, she took a small piece and threw it out of the window. It's for the critters living outside, was her explanation. Then she placed a warm piece of bread and a chunk of butter on a plate and handed it to me. A hot cup of coffee was placed by my side on the table. We ate in silence. After the meal, we sat in the kitchen by the fireplace. The old woman stoked up the fire and sat back in her chair. Smiling at me, sitting across from her, she packed some tobacco in her pipe and lit it. Staring into the fire, she began her tale. A little over forty years ago, the area around here was mostly rocks and wood. Families had their homesteads scattered across the mountain valleys, and only people who ever saw them on a regular basis were the migrant farm workers passing through, the cunning folk out looking for herbs and such, and the mailman who drove up from Piney Ridge Post Office to deliver the mail. 
People around here were always looking for a bit of news they could share and talk about. This was no different than on our April morning that Marvin Lamb was found dead. Lemmy Kane, the mailman, found him all twisted in the powdered dirt and gray in the face. His head was dipped down into the darkness of the rain trench that was on the side of the house. It had rained real hard the day before, and he must have fallen in the rain and didn't get back up. Heart attack, he guessed. Seeing as how the doctor wouldn't be driving into the area to check on things for at least another week, Lemmy went inside Lamb's cabin and took the quilt off his bed to cover him up with. Then he drove two miles up the road to Plate's farm to get a truck and a hand to take old Marvin Lamb down to Mock's funeral home in town. The town of Rowanwood at that time consisted of a dry goods grocery and a feed store, an old gas station, a cafe, a bakery, a community church, and Mock's funeral home. Albert Mock was proud of the services he gave to his small community and considered himself to be one of the few educated people in town. Looking down at Marvin Lamb's body on the table, Albert had to agree with the postman. Yep, heart attack. No need to put him in the cold storage until the dock came. Lamb didn't have any family around here to pay the bill but he figured the church community would raise enough money to have him buried in the local cemetery. Rolling up his sleeves, Albert Mock covered the body back up and thanked the postman. He needed to get it washed and ready to be laid out. Three days later, old Marvin was in the ground. A couple of the ladies from the Church of Our Savior drove over to his home place to pack up his stuff and see if he had any addresses of family that there in his papers. He had kept to himself after his wife died. He even stopped going to church and wouldn't have anything to do with the people there. Some of his neighbors hadn't seen him in years. Lemmy used to tell stories of coming up to deliver mail and finding Marvin mumbling to himself and walking in circles around in the woods behind the house. The old woman stopped speaking and relit her pipe. As she puffed, the smoke from it spiraled up into the air and disappeared. She gazed up toward the ceiling for a minute or so, then quietly said, You might need to know who the characters are in this story. There's a few. Let's see. I'll start with Silas. Old Silas Maybe was the local bone picker. For years, he sold or traded to his neighbors many of the bones he found for their workings or charms. His mam and grandpa had taught him what to look for in the woods and hillsides and how to clean them up. His family had a strong powwow healer bloodline, and though Silas was a bit slow, they taught him the family way. What you just heard is an excerpt from the book Granny Buck's Dibs and Dabs, Appalachian Traditions and Magical Ways by Catherine S. Buck. This unique book is a collection of stories lore, and magical practices gathered from around the central Appalachian region. It encompasses everything from weather and crops to how to curse an enemy or enchant a lover. This hidden knowledge was frequently passed down directly from a wise woman, often simply known as Granny, to her successor. Tonight, we will take an in-depth look at these mysteries as presented in this book. I'm your host, Jason. And you're listening to the Esoteric Book Club. Welcome back, goblins. Tonight, we're looking at some regional magical traditions in Granny Buck's Dibs and Dabs. But first, I want to take a moment to thank the members of the Esoteric Archive. Specifically, Annie Kay, Soul Rising Studios, and Grand Inquisitor Samantha. I also want to welcome our newest Archive member, Teresa. Welcome to the Archive. If you too would like to support the show, head over to patreon.com forward slash esoteric book club. 
Your support helps with server costs, reading material, and helps to fend off the waves of gibbering madness that lurks in the inky confines of my psyche. Man, I need more coffee. Now, I'm not going to go into any more detail about Patreon. By now, you all know how this works. What I will say is that I could really use your help with reviews. I've been at this for roughly three years now, and you know how many reviews I have? Four. Total. Across all platforms combined. Most platforms won't even give me a star rating until I have a minimum of five reviews on their platform alone. So, please help me out. The algorithmic gods that now rule cyberspace don't even acknowledge that I exist until I've reached enough reviews. So pause the episode here. Don't worry, I'll wait for you. Open up whatever app it is that you're using and click like or thumbs up or whatever arbitrary ranking system they use. See it? No, not not that one. The other one. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. See? That wasn't too difficult, was it? Alright, now that we have that out of the way, let's get weird. Before we get started with tonight's book, I want to take a look at an article that was posted recently on the blog Glass Witch Cottage. The blog is run by Irene Glass, and if that name sounds familiar, it should. Irene is the author of the wildly popular Black Feather Mystery School, The Magpie Training which I reviewed in Season 2, Episode 12. If you haven't heard that episode yet, you should really go check it out. It is still one of my most downloaded episodes to date. Anyway, we're talking about her blog today. Specifically, the article entitled, Good Pagan Leadership. There have been a few books and a handful of posts on this topic, but not many really elaborate on the idea as well as Irene does here. So what exactly makes good pagan leadership? According to this blog, there are eight specific traits that make a good pagan leader. The first is, they are in service to something. Yeah, that sounds pretty vague, but I assure you, that's intentional. Their service is towards fixing or filling a piece missing from the local community. They provide information, resources, or direction. They are the ones who actually organize a gathering or coordinate a festival. There are a lot of people who talk about doing things, but leaders are the ones who actually do it. The next trait is that They listen well. I feel like this is a good trait for leadership in general. It is so common for leaders to think that they know better than everyone else. Sometimes, yes, they have information that others don't, and this will shape their decisions. Other times, they simply don't want to hear from those, quote, at the bottom, which is really bad considering that those are the people that they are serving. What Irene points out specifically is that a good pagan leader not only listens, but will adapt and change based on new information. The next aspect is that they are consistent. I'd say that this is the most difficult trait for most people today. It seems like just trying to get through the day is a slog anymore. So being able to set aside your own troubles and your own worries for someone else really makes you stand out. More importantly, a good leader has figured out a way to do so without suffering burnout. Remember what they say about a candle burning at both ends. Then again, sometimes the hardest thing for leaders to do is simply to communicate. In the article, this trait also encompasses organization. At an event, ritual, or festival, there will be times when an issue arises. 
At those times, leaders need to know who to contact, who is in charge of that task, and how clearly and concisely to remedy the situation. Then they have to do all of this without being overbearing or belittling under stress. This isn't always the easiest thing to do when the porta potties are overflowing, the fire dancers have caught the grass ablaze, and little Jimmy can't find his parents. Times like this directly lead to the next trait. A good pagan leader will empower others. A good leader knows that they don't have to do everything themselves. In fact, they give space to those who want to grow. This doesn't mean that they hand over the organization of an entire event to a newbie, but it does mean that they find a task that would best suit that person. They watch them and they guide them, but they also refrain from micromanaging them. These small incremental steps allow things to grow organically. Which leads us to trait number six. They play the long game. Good leaders work within their means. They begin with what is needed and then grow from there. An example from this article says, quote, A lot of the best festivals, communities, and conferences started off really small. Some of them even as campouts in a backyard somewhere or as a discussion circle that met in a coffee shop. Those collectives didn't start by drawing 400 plus people. They started with 40, or four. Rather than trying to go too big too soon, the leaders in charge carefully nurtured the growth of their community, event, etc., so that the foundation was strong. End quote. Start by serving what your community needs, and then grow from there. The next one listed is, Good pagan leaders give a fuck. But it goes a little deeper than that. Good pagan leaders know when to give a fuck. As Irene points out, there is an intrinsic nihilism to not caring about anything. Sure, it reduces stress, but people notice and it reflects in their work. She suggests that a great leader knows when it is important to add that little bit of extra shine to something and when you can allow something to just be. This is especially important in relation to the last trait of a good leader. They enforce boundaries. This may not actually be what you think it's going to be about. Sure, you have to enforce personal boundaries as a leader, but this aspect is about enforcing the boundaries of the group. Pagans have always been under attack from outside. There are religious groups that don't believe that we deserve the same rights and privileges as them. These individuals are only part of the problem, though. In 2023, there is still an ever-increasing threat of bigotry, hate, fascism, and all manner of intolerance from within the community. The worst part is that it is oftentimes insidious. It worms its way into our communities in various guises. But eventually the signs begin to show. It's at this time that great pagan leaders put their foot down and enforce the boundaries of the group. This could mean things get scary for a time, but it's necessary. Irene says it best. Good leaders, quote, understand the paradox of tolerance and do not allow their spaces to become the playgrounds of those who would harm the most vulnerable among us. End quote. That statement really stands on its own. There's no need for me to elaborate on it any further. If you enjoyed this topic, 
check out Irene's other blog posts and online workshops at glasswitchcottage.com. That's glass spelled G-L-A-S-S-E. Hell, let's just make it easy. I'll post a direct link to the article in the show notes for you. Moving on, it's time to check out tonight's book. But first, let's hear about the author. Catherine S. Buck exists? Honestly, I couldn't find too much about her. The same short bit of information is pretty much the same across all platforms, so I'll just read it to you verbatim. Catherine S. Buck has a degree in history and belongs to three national honor societies in education. She is a member of the American Folklore Society. An avid reader, she is also a public speaker, workshop host, and has experience in talk radio and TV. That's it. That is the entirety of what I could find about the author. This is her second book, the first being a guide to tarot, and she now publishes under the imprint of Bellhaven Books. Since there's not much else to say, let's jump right into the contents of Granny Buck's Dibs and Dabs. This self-published book was released in 2019. It's just under 300 pages and is mostly comprised of simple lists of folkloric sayings divided up by theme and subject. One thing I can say, though, is that even though this is a self-published book, it does have a table of contents and a works cited page. It's lacking an index, but based on the structure of the book, I'm not sure that it's really needed. As we've heard previously, there are books on the market from mainstream publishers that don't have this information, so I have to give credit where credit is due. The book doesn't really have a flow to it. It has chapters with a topic or theme, none of which are really related to each other. At least, not in a strict sense. They're in here because they all fall under the purview of Appalachian folk tradition, but there's no carryover from one subject to another. In fact, in the introduction, Catherine states, quote, this book is a little bit of this and that pertaining to Appalachian folk traditions and magical ways. I guess I really can't complain too much, since the author kind of agrees with me. The first chapter of this book is really little more than a list of phrases and lore surrounding weather. It's an interesting list, but not exactly engaging. I heard some of these truisms growing up, so it was interesting seeing that in print. One example is, When apple or onion skins are very thin, a mild winter coming in. When apple or onion skins are thick and tough, the coming winter cold and rough. The phrase makes perfect sense, but it's quickly becoming a part of our recent agricultural past with fewer and fewer people gardening. Another bit of weather lore that is still quite useful to everyone is, if there are rings around the sun or moon, rain or snow will fall. If we stop to think about it, those rings are created by light being refracted through water vapor in the air. So yes, it makes sense that precipitation is inbound. There's a lot of these short sayings, but I really don't want to sit here and read through them all, so I'll read just one more that caught my eye. Most of us have seen the woolly bear caterpillar. They're the fuzzy ones in alternating black and brown bands. Growing up, I heard all kinds of sayings about their coloration. If they're solid black, it's going to be a bad winter. If they're solid brown, it's going to be a bad winter. If they're striped, well, you get the point. Basically, around here, the actual diagnostic characteristics of the coloration have been completely forgotten, and the locals just use it to justify their existential dread for the season. This book clarifies it for everyone. If the orange band, or brown depending on how you see the color, 
in the center of the body is narrow. It forecasts heavy snow. If the band is broad, snowfall will be mild. The quality and thickness of the black hairs indicates how cold it's going to be. So a solid black woolly bear would indicate very little snowfall, but bitter cold temperatures. A solid brown one would indicate a generally mild winter in both temperature and precipitation. It's when the colors are in balance that we need to be worried. Now this chapter isn't just how to forecast weather. There's also a few tricks to find compass points, obviously without using a compass, though I don't recommend looking for moss on trees to find true north. That trick really only works in very specific circumstances in very particular locations. After that, there is a segment on farm folklore. Some of these are more magical and some are more practical. For example, I've heard professionals say that ground pumpkin seeds mixed in with chicken feed is a great way to deworm your poultry. That lore is also in this book. That said, I can't picture the Department of Agriculture suggesting that you leave the last apple hanging from the tree to keep the devil at bay. So as the title of the book implies, there's a little bit of this and a little bit of that. One more tidbit of wisdom that I need to share with my parents, who still garden, is to plant corn during a new moon. Now, it isn't explained why in this section, but later in the book it's explained that during the new moon, the soil isn't as damp. During a full moon, water is drawn closer to the surface, thus increasing the chance that the seeds will rot. Conversely, if you are planting seeds for leafy greens such as spinach or collards, you want to plant them during a full moon. Though I'm getting a little ahead of myself here. After the chapter on weather signs, there is a brief chapter on water witching also known as dowsing. There's a short narrative describing the technique used to locate the spot to dig a well, followed by different items used for dowsing. These include L-shaped metal rods, which you heard me talk about using in the Lifemancy podcast episode entitled Dowsing with Dad, Y-shaped sticks from water-loving trees such as willow or peach, pendulums, and finally, bobbers. To be completely honest, the illustration for the bobber doesn't really clarify anything, and there's no description of the specific techniques used for it. As best I can tell, it's referring to a fishing bobber, and it seems to be used in a similar way to a pendulum, though that is entirely speculation on my part. There's not exactly a lot of context clues here to work from. Chapter 3 is about wildcrafting plants, and it's formatted in a unique way. It follows the idea of show, don't tell. This is something that I really like about this book, and I wish it were used more frequently. Instead of listing a series of best practices in the field of wildcrafting, the author tells a short story of a fictional character who is preparing to go foraging for the day. She goes through all the necessary materials that she has prepared for her trip, while she reminisces about her training. It's a nice combination of both theory and practice presented in a narrative form. You can pick up any field guide, and it will tell you that burdock root can be used for medicine. But this narrative shows the main character cutting the fresh root into long strips, so it will dry easier. Additionally, she muses about how soaking the roots in water prior to drying them will remove their earthy taste. Like I said, it's all about show, don't tell. The next segment within this chapter is a list of timing for when to wildcraft certain herbs. Basically, which herbs are harvested in spring, summer, and fall. 
Then there is a large chart of herbs along with their folk names. My gripe with this chart is that instead of listing the scientific Latin name for the plant, Buck listed the most recognized common name. As an aside, I realized while reading this list of folk names for plants why two specific herbs were mixed up in turn-of-the-century hoodoo research. There was a question in one report as to why St. John's wort was being used by a particular practitioner for a specific spell. The author couldn't figure it out. St. John's wort had never had these particular attributes associated with it. Yet here it was in the field notes. But, while I was reading Granny Buck's dibs and dabs, I noticed that one of the folk names for mugwort was St. John's Weed. It seems that the field researcher was not familiar with this folk name and recorded it instead as St. John's Wart in his field notes. That's why, even in magical research, it is important to be very specific with what plant you are using. That's why I'm frustrated that Catherine didn't use the Latin name for these plants, but instead used the most commonly recognized folk name. Sure, black raspberry isn't likely to change unless our language changes, but scientifically, it will always be Rubus occidentalis. Anyway, this probably won't be my only tangent for the evening, so let's get back on track. Let's jump ahead a bit. So far, there's been some interesting folklore, but nothing that screams esoteric, right? Then we come to the chapter entitled, Planting by the Signs. Appalachian farmers have largely been lampooned by media as being a superstitious bunch. They have all these colloquial phrases that they use to remind themselves of specific timing, planting conditions, and even the harvest. What's unfortunate is that a lot of these phrases make sense once you actually look at the reasoning behind them. Here's where the esotericism comes in. Most of these Appalachian agricultural truisms have to do with astronomy. It's frequently quipped that in the past, people living in poor rural communities only owned two books, the Bible and an almanac. The Bible is self-explanatory, really. We like to recount the legend of how Europeans came to America for religious freedoms, but for most people, it was really just so they could follow their own denomination of Christianity. There weren't exactly many socially acceptable options at that time. Not only that, but Christianity was working hand-in-hand -hand with colonial powers, helping to destabilize newfound countries. But that's a topic for a whole other day. The almanac, though, was essential for farmers. Enough so that there were feuds started over the production and distribution of them. Seriously, there is speculation that the Jersey Devil, which was previously known as the Leeds Devil, was created to slander the descendants of Daniel Leeds. Daniel was printing almanacs using astrological symbols to help delineate timing. The local Quakers found this to be, quote, too pagan, and publicly denounced Leeds. In turn, Leeds decided to lean into the accusations and made his almanac more esoteric. Obviously, this didn't go well. The business was eventually passed down to Titan Leeds, who was directly competing with Benjamin Franklin's Poor Richard's Almanac. Franklin found the astronomical predictions to be ridiculous, so he made fake use of them in his own publications as a joke. He even went as far as to predict Titan Leeds' death in one Almanac edition. This was bad enough, but when Leeds got upset by this, Franklin took it one step further and lamented the passing of Leeds, who was still very much alive. The ploy had major impact on the Leeds family, since people tended to trust Benjamin Franklin, 
and they assumed that Leeds was, in fact, deceased. This affected his business dealings as well as his personal life. It would be the equivalent of being declared dead by the government today. Imagine the difficulty of having to prove to bureaucrats that you are very much still alive. Long story short, the Leeds family crest included a wyvern, which resembled the original descriptions of the Jersey Devil. Titan Leeds was mockingly described as being the ghost of Leeds, and at some point, his story crossed over with the creature of his family crest. And you can see where I'm going with this. See? I told you there would be more tangents. Now, where was I? Oh, right. Almanacs are increasingly important for agriculture. They can help you predict the length of daylight, when seasonal changes will happen, astronomical events, and in some cases, weather predictions. The Old Farmer's Almanac has the distinction of being the book that has been in continuous publication for the longest period of time. But why am I talking about the Almanac? Well, because you'll actually need an Almanac to understand most of the chapter Planting by the Signs. Without being able to look at an actual chart, the concept becomes a little intangible. There's also a little extra work to be done, too, since there is now a 13th astrological symbol that has been added to the zodiac, and that is Ophiuchus, the serpent bearer. Basically, when the zodiac was created several thousand years ago, it was accurate. Since then, the Earth has wobbled a bit each year until we find ourselves in our current predicament. Scorpio season has been slightly reduced, and now Ophiuchus reigns in the skies between November 30th and December 17th. It's unclear when this transition actually happened, in a physical sense. But the addition of this symbol to the zodiac has been discussed for almost 100 years. It only gained traction in the 1970s, though, and it wasn't until 2011 that it got more attention. It's still not an officially recognized member of the Zodiac, as far as I can tell, but for those doing astronomy rather than astrology, it is recognized. Enough so that it is included in the Old Farmer's Almanac. This makes things a little tricky, though. Each astrological sign is assigned one of four classical elements. Earth, air, fire, or water. Ophiuchus is still so new that it's not been assigned an elemental association. For example, in this book, it says that on days with water signs, meaning Pisces, Scorpio, and Cancer, you should plant above-ground leafy annuals. On Earth Days, you plant below-ground vegetables such as potatoes or carrots. Without knowing what element is assigned to Ophiuchus, it's hard to determine what you need to plant. The good news is that it seems that Ophiuchus only shows up about one day out of every month. So maybe just skip that day and rely upon the moon phase instead. That leads me to the next part and that is planting by the moon phases. Each phase is also associated with an element, so the idea is to match the lunar element with the zodiac element to achieve the best results. For example, the first and second quarter of the moon, so the half moon growing into a full moon, are associated with water. You would want to look at the calendar in the almanac and find a day that is associated with a water sign during this lunar phase, and plant above-ground leafy vegetables. To put this into practice, in my region, the last frost date is May 15th. So sowing seeds after this time should be safe. Looking in the almanac, I see that the first quarter of the moon begins on the 27th of May. Now, for the rest of the month, the signs are Leo and Virgo, neither of which are water signs. 
Jumping forward to June 3rd, though, we have a full moon and a day that is in Scorpio, which is a water sign. So if you want to plant leafy vegetables in 2023, the earliest astronomical date to sow the seeds is June 3rd. Man, time is flying, so if I don't hurry this up, we're going to be here for several hours. Okay, there are several chapters on herbs, teas, tinctures, dyes, soaps, candles, bees, honey, moonshine, etc. There's a lot here. Some chapters are better than others, and some are just long, fancy lists. All of these are useful to folklorists, even if they're not exactly engaging reading material. The next one that I want to look at is a chapter on spirit guides. Now, a lot of you out there will get upset at the idea and start ranting about cultural appropriation. Look, I get it. Okay, take a moment to breathe. Inhale. And exhale. Inhale. Hold it. And exhale. This is part of Appalachian tradition. It's not just from the Native American perspective, but it comes from a combination of various European beliefs and African beliefs. The basic structure was in place when outsiders came to the Appalachians, but it adapted to fit the animals of the region. Regardless of modern exploitation and monetization of spirituality, for hundreds of years, this has been part of Appalachian culture. That said, this chapter is almost entirely a bullet point list of animals, birds, insects, and trees, with just a few words describing their spiritual attributes. The list is pretty comprehensive and includes a handful of non-native animals such as alligator or scorpion, but it seems to have overlooked a few natives such as the bear, or even the bobcat. I'm really not sure how that had happened. Bear seems like it would be pretty prevalent. Not only that, but the falcon seems to have been lumped in with animals, but not with birds. Anyway, the parts that make this unique is the inclusion of insect and tree symbolism. Both of these areas are generally neglected in the larger sphere of spiritual meaning, unless they are part of a hyper-focused examination that only includes trees or insects. If nothing else, it's a pretty interesting snapshot of a specific place and time and people's associations with different regional species. The next chapter is on powwow, hoodoo, and a brief mention of snake handling. A large portion of this chapter is about the specific psalms used in different workings. The first ones listed are the ones used for healing and protection. It's not explicitly stated, but considering the psalms used for hoodoo are in a separate section, it's implied that these are the ones generally used by the white communities. Again, I'm not going to go into any details because it's literally just a transcript of each psalm from the King James Bible with a notation such as, used for burns. That said, there is an interesting section devoted to the removal of snakes using prayer and other methods. I had never heard of snake dust until reading this. It's made by grinding up a dried snake skin into a powder, sewing it into a cloth pouch with red pepper or lavender, and then placing it under the floorboards of your home to keep mice and rodents away. There's even a wide array of uses for rattlesnake rattles listed in here. It seems that they're used to draw attention and to keep it. They were worn as necklaces for sexual attraction, added to mojo bags for luck and gambling, and even placed inside musical instruments to get larger crowds, and to prevent rodents from nesting within them when not in use. 
After that, there is a brief description of hoodoo, a selection of Bible passages unique to that practice, and then several pages on candles, candle gazing, and candles used for spells. There's not really anything in here that can't be found in other, more detailed books, but again, as a snapshot of a cultural point in time, this collection becomes quite useful. There's a section after this on crossroads, graveyards, and what's called a bones and bits bag. The part that immediately jumped out to me was a list of headstone symbolism. As long as people have been carving headstones, there have been symbols added as decoration. Sometimes they are just that, decoration. But the farther back in time you go, the greater likelihood of those carvings having a deeper meaning. For example, a flower could denote roughly how old the individual was when they died. An unopened flower bud would be a child. An open flower would be an adult. And a wilted flower would be an elder. Most of the symbols, though, are pretty straightforward. They were largely there for people who couldn't read. As you could guess, most of them have Christian symbolism relating either to Christ, faith, or the resurrection. There is also a list of Appalachian folk beliefs around death and dying. Some of these are pretty extreme, such as, If you touch the body of the dead, it can cure illness. Or, Don't sweep under a person's sickbed, or it could cause them to die. Looking at the list, you realize how many omens of death there really were. Then again, life in the Appalachians is oftentimes extremely difficult, especially if you are deep in the mountains. As we heard earlier, it may be several weeks before the doctor came to town, so you're really kind of left on your own. The real crowning jewel of this chapter, though, is Granny Hagthorne's Bone Bag. This is a specially curated collection of items used by Granny Hagthorne for divination purposes. Despite its name, the items within are not all bones. Looking at the full list of items, there's only a few bones included. To be completely honest, this section alone is worth the price of the book. It begins with another show-don't-tell type story, and concludes with a detailed description of every item within the bag, what each item symbolizes, and how to make a casting cloth for your own set. The entire thing is only eight pages long, but there is a ton of information contained within. The rest of the book goes into other spells like knotwork spells, corn dollies, and poppets. There's even a brief section of various supernatural creatures and cryptids found within the Appalachians. Although it is very, very brief. I'll leave those chapters for you to discover on your own, though. So what do I think of this book? The book itself isn't poorly written, but it doesn't exactly elaborate on very much information. The story sections are quite engaging, and as I've mentioned several times in this review, they serve a very important purpose. In fact, they are written following Appalachian storytelling tradition, so they really draw you into the narrative. The information within isn't necessarily incomplete, but it sometimes feels that way because it's so sparse. I wish there was a bit more attention paid to the overall flow and grouping of the chapters, but honestly, what's there doesn't really detract from the book itself. It's difficult to review this book because, on one hand, I learned a lot, but on the other hand, it feels incomplete. I'm not even sure how to describe it. I really liked the book. There's a lot of information in there, 
but I feel unfulfilled after reading it. I think the best way to describe it is to say that it is a phenomenal supplemental text. Think of it like a multivitamin. Sure, it's got everything you need for the day packed into one convenient capsule. But I still want to eat my regular meals. The vitamin is extremely helpful, it's just not very satisfying. And that's kind of where I am with this book. So if you're doing research into Appalachian folklore, folkways, or regional magical traditions, 100% you need to pick up this book. If you want something that you can sit down and enjoy reading before bed, you may want to look into another author. Either way, links to this book will be in the show notes. As always, special thanks to Sarah Rudy and her band Hello June for allowing me to use the song Fight Don't Fight for intro and outro music. You can find more of their work at bandcamp.com or at wearehellojune.com. The Esoteric Book Club is on Instagram and Facebook, but there's not a ton of activity on either platform. I tend to use Facebook more, but there's still just not a lot of engagement. That said, please leave me a review if you enjoy the show. If you want to support the show, remember that I do have a Patreon page where you can get early access, extended episodes, and now exclusive access to the esoteric news briefs. Some of you may be wondering, how is he going to do an episode extension if he just finished reviewing the book? Well, loyal goblins, patrons are getting a separate review of the book Pagan Portals, Bridget, Meeting the Celtic Goddess of Poetry, Forge, and the Healing Well. This is in celebration of Imbolc, which took place on February 2nd. Modern pagans celebrated on February 1st, traditionally... The timing is a bit more fluid, but we'll get into that. So, for the rest of you, until next time, remember, stay weird. It's time once again to open up the Esoteric Archive. So I'm a little behind, but this time of year is the celebration of Imbolc, depending on when you listen to this episode, of course. Imbolc is the Celtic Fire Festival that is celebrated on February 1st, or when the sheep first start giving birth or when the first flowers pop up out of the ground. Really, the timing is a bit flexible. Hi, I'm Jimmy Coe. And I'm Stephen Hawk. And we're the host of the Cosmic Sponge Podcast, where we explore the unknown from UFOs and cryptids to unexplained disappearances and ancient mysteries. If you're looking for strange stories that will keep you on the edge of your seat, jump on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or search for Cosmic Sponge on your favorite listening platform. Head on over to our website at www.cosmicsponge.com to get access to all of our content, including a full list of platforms where you can enjoy the show.